Well, good morning, Faith. Let's find our seats. We'll get started for the day. All right, I wanted to start off by saying we had a lovely time last weekend, the men's, uh, the men being away on the men's retreat. I wanted to thank all the ladies for, for letting the men go. We did have a great time of fellowship. By far, I think Frank Sladko had the best line of the weekend. We are all sitting outside in the garage just enjoying each other's company, and Frank comes out of the house and he says, this is a men's retreat. Who keeps putting the seat down? <laughs> yeah, that's what I, that was our reaction to. I love it. I love it. Well, welcome back to our series in Genesis, where it all began. We've been trekking through Genesis chapter by chapter, sometimes more, sometimes less, looking at the faithfulness of God as he begins his plan to reconcile not only man, but really all of creation back to himself. God loves to paint pictures in history of what he is doing, of himself. And he does so throughout his word, and he certainly does so here in Genesis and in those whose lives we meet. For us as Christians, this really is where it all began. After spending about half of the book focused on Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we turned our attention to Jacob or Israel's offspring. Four weeks ago, back in Genesis 37, we began to look at Joseph, Jacob's 11th son, but Rachel's firstborn. As we drop in on his history today, I'm just a little bit conflicted, and here's why. As we get near the end of this journey in the book of Genesis, there's more and more to explain at the beginning of every message to give you adequate background for what we're going to talk about on a given day. And with today's message, I'm kind of going to give up trying to explain all that's happened in the past and just sort of focus a little bit on, on some of Joseph's life as, as it's necessary. So if you need more of the background, you're going to need to go back and uh, look at the previous chapters, view some earlier teachings. They're online. They're available there. I felt a little bit I don't know, bad about that because I really want us to have a church environment where people who don't know Jesus, who have just come to know Jesus, who don't know the scriptures, who are new to the Christian faith, can come into Faith Fellowship Church, can sit down, and as they listen, things will make sense to them. With that in mind, at this point in the book of Genesis, what we're seeing here on Sundays mornings is that God has been moving in the life of Joseph, the son of Jacob, or Israel as his name was changed to be. Understand that the stories we have looked at through the book build on each other. After all, much of Genesis focuses around one man and his descendants, Abraham. In fact, one very practical way to study the book of Genesis is to focus on the six main characters we find and how God interacts with them. Our God is a God of relationships with mankind, not only in the book of Genesis, but also in the rest of the Bible. In Genesis, those relations go from Adam to Noah, from Noah to Abraham, from Abraham to Isaac, from Isaac to Jacob, and from, Joseph, uh, from Jacob to Joseph. The six main characters in Genesis being Abraham, Noah, Adam, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. For those who want to catch up, let me remind you, you can always do so if you missed a message by going to ffcsermon or sermons.org where you can listen online, download a podcast, share it with a friend. You can also go to www.ffcph.org, click on the live tab, and watch a previously recorded message. 
Let's pray and see what God has for us today. Father, we thank you for your presence with us. We thank you that you have been on every page from beginning to end, and you are throughout your book, that it speaks volumes of who you are, that your power, your presence, your life comes through your words. Father, we thank you that by those words we can find life, that you've given it to us abundantly. Father, we ask for your blessing this morning and our time and your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we're going to look at chapters 41, oh, sorry, 42, 43, and 44 of Genesis. Sounds a bit aggressive, doesn't it? Well, maybe. But let me put your mind at ease. We're not going to go verse by verse. I'm not sure we've ever actually gone verse by verse on a Sunday morning here. Now, I've been to Bible studies growing up where we went sometimes word by word. And as a teenage boy at the age of 17, I can tell you it felt more like it was going letter by letter. It took so long to get anywhere. So we won't be going to that level of detail. I don't think we need to. I don't think that's why these chapters are here. If we were to just read all three chapters, 2,828 words in the NIV translation, it would take over 20 minutes at 140 words per minute. By the way, that's my average speaking speed, which is right in line with the national average of 120 to 150. Just a little useless factoid if you happen to need to know one. However, as I read these chapters and reread them and reread them, the question I kept coming back to is this. Why are these chapters here? Why are these chapters here? Are they necessary to the story? I'm asking all the normal study questions that I would ask as I read the chapters. Who, what, when, where, how, and why? And it didn't occur to me really until yesterday afternoon that these chapters are vitally important. Why? Because they show the fulfillment of God's plan and promise to Joseph and ultimately to Jacob and Abraham. They are here to show how God made Joseph's dreams come true. Sounds funny considering Joseph's story. Remember, we've been trekking our way through Genesis, and what we've been looking at is the faithfulness of God, that he always does what he says. There are also a lot of other tidbits that we can glean in all the way, so we'll, we'll try to pick up a few of those as we go. Well, question, Jim, what dreams are you talking about? And you did say dreams, right? Well, so let's back up a little, and let's uh, get a little background on Joseph's story. Back in chapter 37, we meet Joseph as a 17-year-old tattletale. Tattletale? Yeah, tattletale. The epic begins with Joseph as a teenager. He's shepherding his father's flock with his older brothers, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. These are the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. Though full sons, they had at best a secondary status in Jacob's affection. Right off the bat, we can see trouble brewing. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now that word used here for report has a connotation of being slanderous. Slanderous? Yeah. So it seems that Joseph wasn't above stretching the truth a little bit to take advantage of his father's affections. You see, Joseph wasn't always the saint that we make him out to be. Now, being dad's favorite, he knew his dad would believe him. So much so that his dad made him 
not gave him, but made him, also gave him, but made him a coat as a gift that set him apart. We're talking extra special just for him. And the brothers, we are told, hated his guts. Now, I'm paraphrasing, but that's the gist of it. They hated his guts. But God was providentially bringing about Joseph's rejection so that Joseph himself might ultimately be used to save his people. Understand that while God is not the author of sin and evil, he has no problem using our own nature and our own choices to accomplish his ends. And so God choreographs Joseph's rejection in two ways. First, by his father's favoritism seen in Joseph's special coat, and that he used him to spy on his brothers. And second, by God giving him a dream of his own future exaltation. Let's take a quick look at both of his dreams. Back in Genesis 37, first dream. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were building sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down. <laughs> His brother said to them, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream, as if one wasn't enough, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time, the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in his heart. But Jim, these are just dreams, right? I mean, I have dreams all the time. They don't mean anything, except perhaps that I shouldn't have eaten that bratwurst with chili and onions right before I went to bed. Not a good idea. Or are you telling me that my dreams are God speaking directly to me? Well, you have to understand that God spoke to Joseph in a very special way through his dreams. Now, it's important to remember that throughout the Bible, there is a progression in the way in which God communicates to mankind. Hebrews says this clearly, Hebrews 1, 1 to 2. Long ago, God spoke in many ways to our fathers, through the prophets, in visions, dreams, and even face to face, telling them little by little about his plans. But now in these days, he has spoken to us through his Son, to whom he has given everything, and through whom he made the world and everything therein. God used multiple ways of communicating direct revelation with his people in ancient times, in visions, dreams, even face-to-face. -face. One example of this is how God revealed his future plan for Joseph in a dream. So here's what's being said. There's a, a progression in the Bible of how history unfolds and how God relates to us. And God used a remarkable diversity of ways to communicate to his people. In these days, our days, the days after Jesus came to earth, was born, died, and rose again, he has used one particular and final way to communicate, and that is through his Son. We have the clearest possible communication from God in Jesus Christ. All that God promised to us and all that he requires of us is made known in Jesus, whom we know through the Scriptures. So Christians should not be worried about or trying to interpret their dreams. Trust me, it's probably something you ate. 
Now, can I limit God? No. But I can read the scriptures and see that dreams are no longer the way in which he communicates. If you want to know what God is saying, read your Bible. Listen for the Spirit to guide you into all truth. And any other experience you might have, nudges, urges, feelings, inklings, indigestion, should be tested against the bar of Scripture. God will never say something contrary to what he has written in his word. But in those early days, there was no Bible. God made himself known by appearances called theophanies. And in, those, and in this story, God spoke through dreams. The point of Joseph's dream Dreams are, is uh, the point of Joseph's dreams is very simple. God would lift Joseph up above his brothers and family, and that is exactly what happens. Joseph, who they despised, becomes the one on whom their hopes depend. The whole point of this story is to direct our attention to a greater son who was loved and favored by God, his father. The one who would be despised and rejected by all, betrayed and sold for silver. Joseph was sold into slavery for 20 pieces of silver by his brothers. Jesus Christ was sold into the hands of the Pharisees by a friend, enemy Judas, for 30 pieces of silver. The one he dipped bread with, who he had an intimate meal with with the other disciples. Joseph went down to prison and was exalted to second in command of all Egypt. Jesus was the one who would go down to the lowest point, into hell itself, and then be exalted to the highest place, breaking open the gates of hell. And heaven and earth are now at his feet. Jesus Christ is the despised and rejected one, the hope of all who bow before him. He is the one to whom Joseph points. Now understand, these dreams come to Joseph with all the force of the word of God. God was revealing the future to Joseph. The impact of this on his heart must have been extraordinary. You have to understand, Joseph was not in the position of waking up in the morning, peering over his cornflakes and saying, Man, I had the strangest dream last night. I wonder what it meant. When we were first married, my wife used to talk in her sleep. And sometimes she would be sleeping and I'd carry on a conversation with her. And I knew she was in distress. And I said, what's going on? And she says, there's a giant chicken chasing me. And if it wasn't a giant chicken, there's a massive roll of toilet paper chasing me through the streets. And I have no idea what those dreams meant. I don't want to know. You know? No, God, Joseph said, he spoke to me last night, and he showed me what will come to pass. Now, it has often been suggested that Joseph should have kept his dreams to himself. It's easy maybe to point to him as someone who's arrogant, self-opinionated, overbearing, maybe a little narcissistic at times. But Joseph's dreams were the word of God, not only for him, but for his whole family. How could he possibly keep it to himself? Mind you, it didn't do him any favors to share it. Telling the word of God was very costly for Joseph. Speaking and telling the word of God may be very costly for us as well. First, his brothers hated him because he was loved and favored by his father. And then they hated him even more because he was loved and favored by God. You see that in verse 8. When Joseph told them the dream, his brother says, his brothers hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. They said to Joseph, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? What they were saying is, never in a million years. No way, Jose. Fat chance. Not, 
Not over my dead body will that happen. And yet the whole story is given to show us that the one they despise becomes the one on whom all their hopes depend. They will come to see that their lives and futures will be in the hand of this loved and favored son, as ours are in the hands of Jesus Christ. What God does here is a thing of beauty, and it's shouts of Jesus Christ from beginning to end of the story. It's a picture that God has painted for us in history to see, to appreciate, to enjoy, and to praise him because it's there. God spoke to Joseph in a second dream, confirming the same revelation that he would be lifted up, not only over his brother, but over his parents too. Again, Joseph tells the dream, and you can imagine Jacob saying, oh no, here we go again. So his father rebuked him. But then we have this fascinating comment in verse 11. Joseph's brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. What if this is really true? What if God is really in this? Could this be what I've been hoping and praying and longing for? Could it be that Joseph will be the means of a great change in the lives of my rebellious sons? What was going on with these guys anyway? What was their great sin? I think their sin was not only jealousy, but also envy. True story. In Iowa, in 1989, two young women, both striking beauties, found themselves grappling over the same boyfriend. Sonia and Cindy had grown up together, going to school together, Competed in local beauty contests together. Sometimes one would win, sometimes the other. Cindy, for instance, became the county's Miss Harvest princess. While over at the high school, Sonia had been named Miss Homecoming Queen. But the main competition between these two women flared in the area of romance. It happened that both were in love with Jim, a strapping young man, and the most promising in the area. Must be the name. What can I say? I have no idea what Jim thought of the spectacle of the two beautiful women fighting over him. Maybe he found it embarrassing. Maybe he blessed it with all that was within him. But in any case, Jim lived in Iowa, not Utah. So Jim had to choose. He couldn't have them both. And so he quit Cindy for Sonia, announced that they planned to get married. When Cindy heard the news, she felt as if she had been stabbed. She felt spasms of pain and envy and rage and jealousy. If Jim and Sonia were try as if Jim and Sonia were trying to, to twist some primitive knife between her ribs. Cindy wasn't used to disappointment, and she had no idea where to buy an antidote for that. It was bad enough to have lost Jim, but what really poisoned Cindy was the thought that her rival had walked off with the prize, that she would be the one enjoying life and having bliss, and there would be none for her. So Cindy killed Sonia. One September night in Iowa, Miss Harvest Princess strangled Miss Homecoming Queen with a leather belt and left the whole community choking with grief. Jealousy and envy is what drove Joseph's brothers to their dastardly deeds, stripping Joseph of his clothes, throwing him into a pit, selling him into slavery. They didn't care about Jesus, uh, Joseph's beautiful coat. They tore it in pieces. They stained it with blood from a goat. They resented Joseph having the coat, the dream, the favored place at all, any of it, all of it, and they didn't have any of it themselves. And even more, they resented him as a brother. 
Well, in order for this promised nation, this covenant community to gather and survive, God was going to have to change his brothers through Joseph's testing. Now, as always, God's word is packed full of stuff for us to see. We won't be able to, to, see, to see all of it and apply it all. We'll do what we can cover. So how was Joseph going to be instrumental to bring his family back together? How will God make his dreams come true? Well, number one, if anyone should have been jaded by the hand that he was dealt, it was Joseph. Forget the family. What about me? What are you doing for me? <clears throat> Joseph wasn't without some early culpability, but he had a rough go of it. I have a dream. High point. At 17 years old, sold into slavery by his brothers, his own flesh and blood, who actually started off wanting to kill him. Low point. Rising to become Potiphar, his master's most trusted slave and servant, with free reign over everything in Potiphar's house except his wife. High point. Being falsely accused of assault by that same wife and being thrown into jail to rot. Low point. Rising again in jail to a trusted place for the jailer. Highish point. He was still in jail. Only to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh's cupbearer and be forgotten by the same cupbearer. Low point. And finally to be exalted to second in command in all of Egypt. High point. What a roller coaster. A 22 year long ride, 250 miles from home. Why me, Lord? I've done everything right. Why is this happening to me? What did I do to deserve this? Joseph could have legitimately asked those questions, and no one would have faulted him. Yet Joseph never lost sight of the God who gave him his dreams. He remained faithful in spite of the ups and downs. One can only hope that his dad spoke to him of El Bethel, the God of the house of God, that he had met on his journey, that had been so faithful to him. Somehow he trusted God to fulfill his dreams. We know this because in next week's section, chapter 45 and 6, he reveals what God was doing behind the scenes, a peek behind the curtain, if you will. Somehow he has a sense of what God is doing and explains why Joseph didn't go all vindictive on his brothers. He may not always, uh, we may not always get to see behind the curtain, but we can trust the God who gives us these words. Paul says in Romans 8, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. But back to our story. What an opportunity. Here is Joseph faithfully serving God, where he has put him. And who should show up but his backstabbing, conniving brothers? I mean, I smell revenge in the air. What an opportunity to get even, to get back. Well, Joseph doesn't go vengeful, but he sure fakes it pretty well. Read the stories, you'll see. Joseph did not let hardship harden his heart. But let's take a look. Now, Joseph, chapter 42, was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him, hmm, hmm, with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. 
Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dream about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. But they replied, Your servants were twelve brothers, the sons of one man, who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with their father, and one is no more. He remembered his dreams. Do you remember his dream? Let's take a look back there. I had another dream, and this time the sun and a moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. How many stars? 11. When Joseph had the dream back in Canaan, he only had 10 brothers. Sorry, later, sisters don't count. <laughs> when you're counting people in the Old Testament, you have to take that up with God when you see him. Jacob had an older sister named Dinah. Here are only 10 brothers. The dream needs 11 to be fulfilled. And so Joseph begins a testing of his brothers to see if they're still the jealous, envious, loathsome brothers that he knew 22 years ago. They had, they had oppressed him, now he oppresses them. They had accused him of spying, now he accuses them. They had thrown him into a pit, now he throws them into prison. And most of all, he calls to bring their youngest brother, who now occupies the place in his father's heart that was once his. And this is how you will be tested, Joseph says. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother. The rest of you may be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see if you are telling the truth. If you are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he put them in all in custody for three days. Three days ought to chill them out. I've never spent any time in jail, but... I bet you it chills you out a little bit, sobers them up. And it did. After three days, Joseph says to them through an interpreter, do this and you shall live, for I fear God. Not just any God. He references their God, Elo uh, Elo Elohim. He's doing a major mind job on his brothers. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you go and take grain back for your starving households. But you must bring your, other bro your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. This they proceeded to do. How does he know our God? They had to be wondering. And, after, <clears throat> and it is after this encounter that we see his brother's hearts begin to change as, they, as they change as they own up to their past sins. And it moves Joseph to tears. They said to one another, surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when, we pleaded, when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come on us. Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. Notice Joseph is no longer the dreamer. Joseph is our brother. It moved Joseph to tears, but not enough for him to go easy on them. Joseph has to be sure. So he takes Simeon and he binds them in their presence and he sends them packing home to get Benjamin. Was it all talk or had a real change of heart actually occurred? Would they leave Simeon in jail to rot to save their own necks or would they return with Benjamin? What would they do when they found that all their money had been put back into their saddlebags? Surely when they come back, they would be treated as thieves. What are they going to do? 
There's lots more detail, but we, we won't have time to go into it all. So I encourage you to read these chapters on your own. And I hope you do. I hope you read them, reread them, re-re-read them, and you will begin to see what comes out of these chapters of Joseph's story that God has for you. And as you'll do, you will see the change of heart that not only takes place in Joseph's brothers, but also in Jacob. Jacob has to once again let go and let God, if you will. And so he sends Benjamin to Egypt with his brothers. He is faced with the very real prospect of losing him and Simeon like Joseph. Remember, he doesn't know Joseph is alive. And it is here in chapter 43 and 44 that a true transformation takes place. All 11 brothers are present. The first dream has been fulfilled, and all that remains is for his father to come as well. If you want to see that happen, come back next week. But before anything else, Joseph has one final test to see if his brothers have truly changed. In order to be sure, he sets a trap for Benjamin that he knows will be the tipping point for his brothers. As his brothers, all 11 of them, prepare to go home, Joseph stashes his own silver cup in Benjamin's sack before they leave. Now Joseph gave these instructions to the steward of his house. Fill the men's sack with as much food as they can carry. As they can carry. And put each man's silver in the mouth of his sack. Then put my cup, the silver one, in the mouth of the youngest one's sack, along with the silver for his grain. And he did as Joseph said. As morning dawned, the men were sent on their way with their donkeys. They had not gone far from the city when Joseph said to his steward, Go after those men at once, and when you catch up with them, say to them, Why have you repaid good with evil? Isn't this the cup my master drinks from and also uses for divination? This is a wicked thing that you have done. The brothers are so sure of their innocence that they pledge that whoever has the cup will be put to death. This is how sure none of them have it. If any of your servants is found to have it, he will die, and the rest of us will become our Lord's slaves. Very well, then. This is Joseph's servant. He said, let it be as you have said. Whoever is found to have it will become my slave. The rest of you will be free of blame. With full dramatic effect, they proceed from the oldest brother to the youngest brother, opening sack after sack after sack, working their way down the line. I can imagine the tension in their hearts as they went from sack to sack. Maybe, they were, maybe their hearts uh, were lightened as they went through number 10, number 11, nobody's got it, we're almost in the clear. Or maybe it was the other way. Oh, I hope it didn't Benjamin. I hope it didn't. Will they, you know, and sure enough, when they open Benjamin's back, there it is. The stolen cup is in his sack. Will they cut their losses to save their own skins? After all, we have Simeon back. It's not a total loss. What's the outcome going to be? Well, this is Judah speaking to Joseph, and here is what he has to say, the last four verses of chapter 44. So now, if the boy is not with us, when I go back to your servant, my father, Judah is speaking to Joseph, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then, please, let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy, and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. What 
a change of heart. And it only took 22 years. Are you willing to wait for God to work on his timetable? I know it can be hard. I really do. Most of you know that we have a younger daughter who has walked away from faith. Pray for her. Pray for her and her boyfriend. They are genuinely seeking, and we have lots of conversations. Our greatest dream is to see both of them here knowing God, seeing God change their hearts. I'd rather it was on my timetable, not God's. 22 years is a long time to wait. Well, let's wrap it up. Here's what I want you to take away from these three chapters today. Number one, if you want God to make your dreams come true, number one, they've got to be God's dreams aligned with what he's doing. They need to be his dreams. And like Joseph, you need to trust God through the ups and downs. He's with you in the ups. He's with you in the downs. Even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, as Joseph would say, you are with me. You may may not be able to see what is going on behind the curtain, and so you need to, to lay claim to this promise that Paul gives us. He says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. If those two things describe you, God is working on your behalf. And number two, sometimes change takes time in those we love the most. It took 22 years for Joseph's brother to have a true change of heart. Hang in there. Your behavior and testimony may very well win them to Christ. And a real change in their hearts will take place before your very eyes. I want to finish this morning with this prayer from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. When I think of the wisdom and scope of his plan, I fall down on my knees and I pray to the Father of all the great family of God, some of them already in heaven and some down here on earth, that out of his glorious unlimited resources, he will give you the mighty inner strengthening of his Holy Spirit. And I pray that Christ will be more and more at home in your hearts, living within you as you trust him. May your roots go down deep into the soil of God's marvelous love. And may you be able to feel and understand, as all God's children should, how long, how wide, how deep, and how high his love really is. And to experience this love for yourselves. Though it is so great that you will never see the end of it or fully know or understand it. And so at last you will be filled up with God himself. Now glory be to God who by his mighty power at work within us is able to do far more than we would ever dare to ask or even dream of infinitely beyond our highest prayers, desires, thoughts, or hopes. May he be given glory forever and ever through endless ages because of his master plan of salvation for the church through Jesus Christ. Faith Fellowship, we serve an awesome God. Amen? Amen. Know that God is for you, not against you. Have a good day in Jesus. Amen. You're done. <laughs>